And if you could bring it up on the monitor also, John. So I want to kind of get us warmed up first, get our minds kind of engaged. Back in the 80s, maybe some of you remember, Major League Baseball had this thing called You Make the Call. It was a promotion on TV, and they'd show a play, and then you had to decide, was the guy out? Was he safe? Did they score? Was it a foul ball? That kind of thing, based on your knowledge of baseball. That was back before Major League Baseball went political back in the 80s. But I want to do something similar here. I'm going, to, I'm going to present some thoughts to you, and I want you to tell me whether they're true or not, okay? So we'll get started here. First of all, an easy one. Let's see if the PowerPoint, I don't think it's going yet, John. It's still waking up. Oh, sound man was up early this morning. If you just bring up that first slide for me when it is up. There we go. Okay, baby carrots introduced in 1986. They were one of the first GMO, genetically modified organism, one of the first GMO foods approved by the USDA. Is that true or not? If you think it's true, raise your hand. Couple takers. Okay, well, that is false. (laughs) They're actually not. Believe it or not, baby carrots are regular carrots chopped up and then ground into the shape of little baby carrots. They they were invented by a farmer called Mike Eurosek back in 1986 because he didn't want to throw away the deformed carrots. So he said, hey, we'll chop them up and make them into baby carrots and market them. So that's where it came from. Okay, next one. First, uh, the city of Reno, Nevada. There's a picture. The city of Reno, Nevada lies west of Los Angeles, California. Who believes that's true? Show of hands. Only one, two, three. You guys are a tough crowd. Only three people believe that's true. Well, it is. It's actually true. And in fact, uh, there are six state capitals that lie west of Los Angeles, California. You don't believe me. I see it in your face. You're going, that is not true, Paul. Well, okay, I'll bring up some evidence here. Take a look at this map, you doubters. (laughs) Here you go. Reno, Nevada is, in fact, west of Los Angeles, California, even though it doesn't seem that way. Okay, let's try another one. You didn't do too good on that one. Here's one we can kind of all agree to, I hope. Uh, Sugar makes kids hyper. (laughs) Who's on board with that one? Two arms high up, yeah. Okay, sugar makes kids hyper. That's actually false. (laughs) Sorry to tell you. That was a a study back in 1978, and and everybody got on board and said, yeah, it makes my kids hyper. But it's actually, actually it was bad data, and it's been proven time and time again since then to be false. You can go on WebMD. There's no connection, they say, between sugar and hyperactivity in kids. So parents, grab some of those donuts back in the gym, get some frosted flakes on the way home, and live it up with your kids. Okay, a couple more here. Let's see. See how we do on this one. All right, in 1945, a farmer cut the head off a chicken and it continued to live for 18 months. He fed it milk with an eyedropper and put little pieces of corn and worms directly in his esophagus. (laughs) Who believes that's true? Show a hand. Oh, a couple of you, a few of you. Actually, that is true. (laughs) Right on. That is true. In fact, 
this chicken is known as Mike the Headless Chicken. And he's a phenomenon out in Fruta, Colorado, where this all took place. His owner went on a, a road show, a traveling road show. He was raking in like 25 cents a person, $4,500 a month with this, this sideshow. That's like over 51 grand a month today. And in fact, if you go to Fruta, Colorado in May, you can celebrate Mike the, the Headless Chicken Festival. They have things like a run like a chicken with your head cut off 5K. <laughs> they got a pin the head on the chicken games and all kinds of things. He's a phenomenon out there. It seems terribly unlikely, but it's actually true. Well, Let's look at another one. This is probably one we can all agree on. You can figure it out yourself. Are you hearing some kind of noise? Okay. We got all kinds of issues this morning. At least we're not streaming a Catholic Mass, are we? <laughs> um, okay. In a room of 23 people, there's a better than 50% chance of two people sharing the same birthday. Who thinks that's true? What? <laughs> well, okay, that is actually true. And you're thinking, how is that possible? There's 365 days in a year. Well, it's actually known as the birthday paradox. You can go online and you can look it up. Here's the formula to calculate it. 23 people at random in a room, there's a better than 50% chance that two of them share a birthday. So Google it, don't do it now and act like you're on your Bible app and you're really looking that up or Mike, the headless chicken. But that's actually true. You know, my point in this is that there are a lot of things that seem almost unbelievable but are actually true. And then there's a lot of myths and hoaxes out there that we might think are true but they're not. So how do you tell the difference between the two? Well, it helps to have some evidence, doesn't it? We need evidence. We need facts. And if we have enough evidence, it can even be what we might call a proof. Here's a definition of a proof. A proof is sufficient evidence for the truth of a proposition. Not, not undeniable. And, you know, it's not like it's, it's proven beyond any doubt, but beyond reasonable doubt. A proof is sufficient evidence that something is true. Well, as we come to the resurrection this morning, is it true? Is there enough evidence that the resurrection is true? And this is really important because listen to what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Your faith is worthless. It's all for naught if Christ has not been raised from the dead. So it's critical that a person look at this evidence for the resurrection. But is there enough evidence there? Is it proven? Has it already been proven? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning, but that's only one thing, because God turns that whole thing on its ear, and he says, now I want to show you the resurrection proves several other things, seven things, in fact. God uses the resurrection as his proof of other things, both past, present, and future. And we want to look at those things as well. So the message titled this morning is Proof Positive. And I want to look at two aspects of it. First of all, proof for the resurrection. And then secondly, proof from the resurrection. 
So here we go, let's jump into it. We said that proof is having sufficient evidence. I'm thankful that God does not call us to blind faith. He does not say ever, just believe. He gives us evidence, reason for our faith, and then calls us to believe. There's still faith involved, but it's not blind faith. Take a look at Acts chapter one, and we'll, verse three is what I wanna focus on, but let's just start in verse one of Acts chapter one. What evidence is there for the resurrection? Acts chapter one begins, in my former book, Theophilus, now this is written by Luke, the same man that penned the gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And, here comes a key verse, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 45 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus gave many convincing proofs. If you have a New King James Version, it says many infallible proofs. That's the name of a book. I have many infallible proofs. He didn't say just believe, just believe that I rose from the dead. He gave many infallible proofs. And then he called people to faith, but not blind faith. He didn't want us to have any doubt about the resurrection because it's central to our salvation. So we have to get this point right. And he went above and beyond to make sure that we know that the resurrection is true. So we've spent time in the past looking at a lot of the evidences for the resurrection. We're still gonna touch on it today. We can't go into all the details, but I think it is important to first establish the fact of the resurrection. It's been called the most well-attested fact of ancient history. So what are the evidences to back it up? Well, they include, first of all, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Here's the thing. The governor, Pontius Pilate, posted a Roman guard at that tomb. 10 to 16 men, armed, trained professionals, and they sealed the tomb. And these guys, if they so much as fell asleep on the job, they would be killed. Or if that seal was broken, they would be killed. Why did they do this? Because the Jewish religious leaders asked them to because they had heard Jesus talking about a resurrection. So they sealed the tomb and believe me, they knew how to seal and guard a tomb. The tomb was empty. That's the first thing. Secondly, the eyewitness accounts. The Bible chronicles 12 different instances in which individuals or groups of people saw the risen Lord. They happened at different times, in different places. He interacted with them in different ways. At one point, more than 500 people saw the risen Lord together. A third thing, the early and accurate records of these events. These events were not recorded like centuries, generations later where somebody told somebody something else and they pass it on and like this whole fable arose. These events were recorded almost immediately after they, they occurred. And it was captured for us. We have in the New Testament, we have over 5,000 original, or rather copies, manuscripts, or fragments of the New Testament in Greek, and over 10,000 in Latin. It's been marvelously preserved. 
and through textual criticism, when they look at all of those different manuscripts, there's an unbelievable level of accuracy, 99.5% internal accuracy of those texts. It's astounding. And these date back as close to just 60 years after the original was penned. It's absolutely unheard of in ancient literature. These events were recorded right away. In fact, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that when these things were recorded, when the letter to the Corinthians was written and circulated, most of those 500 people were still alive. If there was any question, they could go check it out. They could ask one of them. They were first-hand eyewitnesses. So we have early and accurate records of these events. We also have the extraordinary transformation of the disciples. Remember after Christ's death, they were cowering in a locked room, afraid that they were going to be arrested and maybe killed as well. But after they saw the risen Lord, and after they were filled with the Spirit of God, they became these bold proclaimers of the gospel. They were tortured. They were, they were killed, almost all of them, for their faith. But they never ceased to boldly proclaim what they had seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before he was a Christian, Chuck Colson was best known for his role in the Watergate scandal. And he was actually a special counsel to President Nixon. And he, he said this, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's what Chuck Colson said. There was an extraordinary transformation in these disciples. And then there was a conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a, was a crazy man out to shut down the church. He was breathing out murderous threats against the church and persecuting Christians until one day he encountered the risen Lord Jesus and all of that changed. Paul, the opponent of Christianity, Christianity became the biggest proponent. Almost a third of the New Testament was penned by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. It was a phenomenal transformation in his life. And then there's the fulfilled prophecy. Jesus prophesied, he foretold his death and his resurrection in great detail. Let me read you just one account. Matthew chapter 20. I'll read from verse 17 to 19. It says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Then he said this, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Who says something like that? That would sound like a crazy man. Again and again, he foretold, he prophesied of his resurrection. But in fact, that again is the reason why the Jews pressed Pilate to post a guard at the tomb so that 
he couldn't fake a resurrection. They wanted to make sure that this didn't happen. But what's even more amazing than Jesus speaking of it before it happened is the fact that God wrote about it hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. It was through prophecy. Prophecy is history written in advance. Only God can prophesy because God sees a whole span of human history. He's outside of time. The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. And this is his calling card. He says, who's like me, knowing the end from the beginning? He told us what his plan was and his purpose, and then he demonstrated it. And so, in the Old Testament, he spoke through the prophets, and it was recorded. The Old Testament was in print and widely circulated a couple hundred years before Jesus was even born. And let me just read you two accounts of what it says. Psalm 16 was written around 500 B.C., And in verses 9 and 10, David writes, Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue will rejoice. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will your Holy One see decay. David knew he would be resurrected and that Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One would be as well. And then Isaiah chapter 53, the whole chapter, you might go home and read it this weekend. The whole chapter details Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and it was written 700 years before he was born. Isaiah 53, let me read you verses seven through 11. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He'll be sentenced, he'll be beaten, tortured, sentenced to the grave. And then he'll see the light of life. That's prophesying Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, 700 years before he was born. God laid these things out in advance so that when it happened, you and I and everyone else could have great certainty that this was true. And there are many, many more evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. There are also doubters. There are doubters out there. Yet I'm amazed at how many people go about trying to disprove the resurrection and actually when they encounter the evidence, they end up becoming believers and proponents of the resurrection. See, the resurrection, the evidence is so clear that to not accept it, you have to pretty much have an agenda. There has to be some reason. I I, I can't deny it, but I'm gonna deny it because I'm gonna embrace this. There's other agendas involved. Let me read you about some of these men, brilliant men, atheists who went about to disprove the resurrection. Men like Dr. Simon Greenleaf, 
In the early 1800s, he was a royal professor of law at Harvard University and was one of the greatest legal minds that ever lived. He believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax and he set about to expose it as a myth. But after examining all the evidence for the resurrection, Dr. Greenleaf came to the exact opposite conclusion. He said this, he said, it is it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had, they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. And he followed it up by writing a book that only a, a lawyer could title, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. <laughs> he, he couldn't just call it Who Moved the Stone. <laughs> you know, no, he had to go into this big... But what he's saying is, I'm a lawyer, and I looked at all the evidence, and you could try it in any court, and it's overwhelming evidence. Another brilliant man, Sir Lionel LeCou. Now, Lionel LeCou is said to be the world's greatest lawyer. And he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for successfully defending 245 consecutive murder cases. Didn't lose a one. He was a brilliant lawyer, but he went about trying to disprove the resurrection. And after he looked at all the evidence, he said this remarkable statement, I can say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. In other words, if you don't think it's true, you've got something else, some other motive, because the, or you just are ignorant. You haven't looked at the evidence. It's overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yet, so many people dismiss it as a myth. Our world says, nothing to see here. It's a hoax. It's a myth. It's just a bunch of people using religion as a crutch, the opiate of the masses. Don't even bother. Do you, have you seen the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The overwhelming evidence? God says that Jesus gave many infallible proofs, convincing proofs that he rose from the dead. There's other men, uh, more contemporaries. Frank Morrison, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Chicago born and raised journalist. You know the book and the movie, The Case for Christ. You can rent the movie on uh, Netflix or Amazon. And it presents a lot, his whole process of trying to disprove this because his wife had become one of those believers. And so he went about, I'm going to prove her wrong. I'm going to save our family. And guess what? He came face to face with the evidence and gave his life to the Lord. So there's many other men. The evidence is, is clear, and as, uh, as I said, it's overwhelming. Um, if you have interest in looking at that further, there's a number of good books out there that will unpack for you many of these truths. Some of my favorites uh, are these, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, uh, Josh McDowell's New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. One of my favorites is a simple book, I'm Glad You Asked, by Ken Boa and Larry Moody. One Skeptics Ask, one of my favorite authors, Norman Geisler, he's, he's uh, into epistemology, the study of logic and reason, and he prevents very logical cases for Christ and the resurrection. And then Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Those are some, but don't fall into the world's trap of there's nothing to see here. It's just a hoax. Check it out for yourself. God has given many convincing proofs of the resurrection.
So there's plenty to demonstrate that it is true. But here's what I want to look at secondly, and that is proof from the resurrection. We often look at this proof of the resurrection, but God says this resurrection proves several other things. And what are those things? That's what I want to look at. First, the resurrection is God's proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to work through uh, several verses in Romans, kind of in sequential order to make it easy. So look at the book of Romans, chapter 1. I want to look especially at verse 4. It says this, Who, through the spirit of holiness, was, was declared with power to be the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is saying the resurrection declared that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, as if the events of his birth and the miracles that he did was not enough, God says, I give you another example that proves, that declares with power he's the Son of God, the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Son of God, none other than God himself who came in human flesh. You know the verse, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then John three seventeen is, is equally good. It says, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was revealed to the world as the Savior on the very day that was predicted way back in Daniel chapter 9. There was a mathematical prophecy in there that said the day that he would present himself to the nation of Israel. We celebrated it last week in Palm Sunday. And one week later, they crucified him because they, he didn't live up to their expectations of overthrowing the Roman Empire. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire the first time he came to be the suffering savior. There are more than 330 prophecies of Jesus. Where he would be born, how he would be born, where he would die, how he would die, how much money would be, be paid to, to betray him, where that money would go. It depicted death by crucifixion hundreds of years before it was even invented. There's 330 prophecies, and if you're into mathematics, you can take just 48 of those, and the odds of one man fulfilling just 48 of those by chance is 1 in 10 to the 168th power. That's 1 in 10 with 168 zeros after it. That's so far beyond impossible, it's not even funny. Scientists say that 1 in 10 to the 50th is impossible. We'll take that times trillions of trillions and trillions of trillions of more times, that's how unlikely, impossible it is that one man by chance fulfilled just 48 of the prophecies. But God says, I give you 330 to make sure you know this is my son. Many infallible proofs. So, first of all, Jesus is the son of God. The resurrection proves it. Secondly, the resurrection is God's proof that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for your salvation and for mine. Page forward to Romans chapter 4. 
Romans chapter 4, this whole chapter speaks of, of Abraham and how he had faith and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then it says, beginning in verse 23, it says, the words it was credited to him as righteousness were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who was, who was raised, Jesus our Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, is to him, let me back, rewind that. Uh, <laughs> for us, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Jesus was raised from the dead, it says, for our justification justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's basically what justified means. And we're justified by faith, it says. God did all the work. There's no work left to be done. But we must believe, we must trust in the work that God did because we're justified by faith in the Son of God, in his death, burial, and resurrection to pay the penalty for our sin. Third, the resurrection is God's proof that believers can live holy lives. Romans 6, 4 says this. Just a couple pages forward. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? Live a new life. And that's not just speaking of eternal life. That's talking about new life now, a new way of life. Listen to how it's captured for us in Ephesians 1. It's, it speaks of his incomparably great power for us who believe. It says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. His incomparably great power for us who believe right now. See, God's resurrection brings not only the power to cancel out our past, it brings the power to live a holy life right now, today. Not a perfect life, but a holy life. I see this in many of you in this church family. I see it in, when as your lives are being transformed from your old ways of thinking and living into your new ways, your new life. I see it when you develop a love for God's word and you dig in and you study the word of God because you want to know this God who saved you. I see it when you stand and worship the Lord together like this morning. I see it in the sacrificial ways that many of you serve the Lord by serving within this church body, new life. I see this new life when you go through painful trials yet you stay close to the Lord and you testify to his great love and, and you testify to the hope and the joy that you have. Many of you are still going through great trials with joy because of God's new life and his power. I've seen it as some in our church family have neared the end of their life and even passed away. And yet they did it with an unbelievable peace because they knew 
that they would spend an eternity face to face with Jesus Christ. A crazy peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, Scripture says. We saw it just in the past year or so in Sue Williams, Phil and Sharon Skull, Tom Waltower, Denise Summer, and more. We've seen it in those they left behind. Terry Bolliger lost his wife, and we see the joy and the hope and the confidence he has that she is with the Lord and that he will be there one day as well. We see that. That's the power of the resurrection to live a new life today. God proves that you have access to that power. And he says, I've proven it by my resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is also proof that Jesus intercedes for us. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Romans 8, 33 and 34 say, Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think about that. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father this morning and he's praying for Riverside Community Church. He's praying for you. That's what it means to talk to the Father, to pray. He's talking to the Father, interceding on your behalf. How can he do that? Because he was raised to life so that he might. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. It says, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What a beautiful thought. Christ rose And he sits at the right hand of the Father alive so that he can intercede for you. He's not dead. The resurrection is also God's proof that Jesus is Lord. He's not only the Son of God, but he's Lord. Romans chapter 14. And in verses, in verse 9. It says, for this reason, Jesus died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He returned to life so that he might be Lord. Now the word Lord, it's a Greek word, kurios, and it means master. It means the one who's ultimately the word to submit to. That's what Lord means. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's a contradiction. Because Lord means the one that I submit to in everything. The one who's first, the supreme authority in my life. Now we sit here and we sing about Jesus and Lord, right? Just replace the word master, supreme authority. That's what what Lord means. Remember when Jesus began explaining to his disciples, I read it earlier, that he was going to go into Jerusalem. They were going to torture him. They were going to nail him to a cross. He'd be killed. And on the third day, he'd rise again. Well, Peter took Jesus aside. Let me read you Matthew 16, 22. Quote, Peter took him aside. Jesus, come over here. I I got to tell you something, Lord. And it says, he took him aside and began to rebuke him. He said, never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Never, Master, who I submit to, never supreme authority in my life. Those two words 
never go together. You can't say that. Never, Lord. They're more of an oxymoron than the word civil war. What is that? Or words like random order. Or this one, rap music. I can't get my mind wrapped around that one. Rap music or sometimes I'm afraid adult male. (laughs) I'm only kidding on a couple of those. You'll have to figure out which ones. (laughs) Never Lord. You can't say that, but it's not just Peter who says that. You say that, and I do too, because every time we don't do what God tells us to do, we're saying, never, Lord. When we don't obey him, it's like saying, no, Lord, no, Lord. But he's not only to be our savior, he's to be our Lord. He rose to be our Lord. Now, again, that's not saying that as believers we can have perfect obedience, but Being a follower of Christ is more than just trusting in him as your savior. It's being obedient to him as your Lord. And so we should be seeing in our lives growth in obedience. Christ rose. God rose him from the dead so that he might be our Lord. Number six. The resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus will return to judge the world. Take a look at, now we're going to jump back to Acts chapter 17. This verse says it so clearly. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. It says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this. How? He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God's saying, Jesus is coming back to judge the world, and my proof is the resurrection. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus will judge all mankind. God's given proof of it, how? By raising him from the dead, the resurrection. Someone might say, well, who is he to judge me? God, (laughs) for starters, the one who created you. And he's the only, it says he'll judge the world with justice. God is a perfectly just judge. And unless he judges sin, there can be no justice. Think about maybe a federal judge on the bench and they bring before him the man who shot up the grocery store in Boulder, Colorado two weeks ago. And they put him, they place him before this judge and the judge asks him, sir, did you shoot, did you murder these people in the grocery store? Uh, Yes, your honor, I did. Do you realize that you killed 10 people, including a veteran police officer? Yes, sir, I do. And then the judge says, okay, you can go, and sets him free. Or maybe he calls him back, wait, come back. And he says, here's a few million bucks. Take this taxpayer money and spend it however you like. What would your reaction be to that judge? <laughs> You'd want him thrown in prison. That's not justice. That's not a just judge. Justice requires judgment, righteous judgment. 
And Jesus Christ is the only righteous judge. And he, he will come back to judge the world. And God's resurrection proves it. God says, this is my proof. So you might wonder, then, well then, if God is a just judge, how can he forgive you and me for our sin? We're guilty. We're going to stand before him. How can he say, you're free, welcome into heaven? Because the penalty has already been paid. He can't just erase it. Just like a, a, a bookkeeper can't just erase a debt from the books. The ledger has to stay in balance. A bookkeeper must transfer money from another account into the account to offset the debt. See, our sin was transferred to Jesus Christ so that his righteousness might be transferred to us. God didn't, can't just wipe out sin. He paid for it. He paid for your sin and my sin. It's a balanced transaction. That's why God can forgive you because the penalty for your sin has already been paid. Well, finally, the resurrection of Jesus is God's proof that the dead will one day be raised. The very first verse that I read this morning was 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But then it continues in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Another word for death. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God is the author of life. He brought you into this world. He gave you life. He's totally capable of raising you back to life after you're dead. And he proved it because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He promises all men will be raised back to life again and will stand in judgment before the Lord. When the light of all of this that we just heard, listen to these words of Jesus in John eleven twenty five. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he ends it this way. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe he's the son of God? That he's Lord? That his sacrifice is sufficient for you? That he's coming back to judge the world? That he gives you the power you need to live a holy life? Do you believe that? God doesn't delight in condemning anybody. It's his desire that all men should be saved. The verse in John 3, 16 and 17, it goes on to say, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But then verse 18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Condemned already. Forgiveness is God's pardon. He paid the price so that he could extend forgiveness to you and to me. Back in 1830, there was a man named George Wilson. And George Wilson was guilty. He was convicted of robbing the federal payroll and putting some federal officers' lives at risk. And the sentence was handed down that he must die because he robbed the payroll. But President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson... But for some unexplained reason, 
George Wilson denied the pardon. He said, I don't accept it. The country said, what do we do? The president has pardoned him, and he says he refuses to accept the pardon. So it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and one of the greatest justices we've ever had, Chief Justice Marshall, and Chief Justice Marshall concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. He said this, quote, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it's no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Get that, a pardon has to be accepted. God extends to every single one of us a pardon. We can be justified by faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we deny that pardon, we're condemned already. Well, what does it take to receive this pardon? It takes humility and honesty, first of all. You have to admit that you are a sinner. Listen to what 1 John uh, 1, 8 through 10 says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we're liars. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. So we have to admit we're a sinner and that we're in need of a savior. And we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified through faith. And when we do, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And yes, Michael, my friend, all means all, right? Amen. We talked about this last week. All unrighteousness, past, present, and future. But if we deny the pardon of the Lord, we're condemned already. We can't be forgiven. He alone is the solution to our problem of sin. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But those who reject will pay the penalty, their own, the penalty for their own sin. But God doesn't want that. That penalty, by the way, will be eternal separation from God and all of his goodness. That's what hell is. It's eternal separation from God and all of his goodness. We're wrapping this up. There's some things that seem too un, almost unbelievable to be true, yet they're true. The evidence shows that they're true. Then there's other things that we might believe are true, but they're a myth or a hoax and they're not true. We need evidence. God hasn't called any of us to blind faith. He's given us firm evidence. In fact, overwhelming evidence, infallible proofs that the resurrection is real. God said that he would come and provide a way of salvation, and he did. He said the Savior would die and be raised to life again, and he was. And now he says that the resurrection is proof for you today, proof that Jesus is God's son, proof that his sacrifice is sufficient, proof that believers can live holy lives, proof that Jesus is alive interceding for you, proof that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, proof that he will return to judge the world, and proof that you and I will one day be raised to life again if we die before he returns. Maybe you've never really given much thought to the resurrection. 
The world doesn't want you to consider it. Just one of those crazy hoaxes, myths that those Christians put out there to lure you in. But God says there's many infallible proofs. Or maybe you placed your faith in God but have never really considered what that means for your life here today. What does the resurrection mean for you? Either way, we have so much to consider and so much to celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was your plan of salvation from the beginning. You told us first in Genesis 3, right after the fall of mankind. You told us you had a plan. You showed us your purpose. You said you would do it. And God, you did it. You proved it. You proved that you're the Lord of life. You proved your power over even sin and death. And it proved, it proved that you're a God of justice as well. And at the same time, it proved your loving kindness to all who will call on your name. God, what an incredible thing you've done. And we marvel at it. And we worship you for it as we celebrate it this morning. But God, as we're praying, and we have our heads down, Lord, and we're considering our lives before you, God, maybe you're showing some of us that we're a sinner and that we need a Savior. Maybe there's some here who've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection for their forgiveness. And God, maybe you're prompting them that it's time to do that this morning. Or maybe, God, some have taken a step of faith some time ago, but they haven't been walking in obedience to the Lord. And so you're calling them to get back on track, to surrender their life to you completely. If that's one of you, whether you need to put your faith in Christ or you need to give your life back to him, then right now, where you're sitting, I want to ask you to do a simple but bold thing. I want to ask you, while we're praying for you, I want to ask you to just hold up your hand. And by doing so, you're saying, God, I surrender my life to you. I believe by faith that you came for me. And I want you to forgive me my sin. If that's you, slip up your hand and I will pray for you as we close out this service. Or maybe you're one who's wandered away. You haven't been following Jesus as Lord. And you need to get back on track. Hold up your hand. You're saying to the Lord in the privacy of your own heart, God, I need you. Forgive me. Come back into my life. Give me that resurrection power. Make me your child. Make me a new creation in Christ. If one of those are you this morning, then pray this prayer out to the Lord. Right where you're sitting in the privacy of your own heart. And God will hear you. He'll hear you and he'll answer your prayer. Call out to him and say, Lord, I give you my life. I realize that I've sinned and my sin separates me from you because you're holy, God, and I'm a sinner. Forgive me for the sinful things that I've done. Cleanse me, renew me, forgive me. God, I believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And so, God, I turn from my sin and I turn to you in faith. Make me your child, a new creation, pure, justified, righteous in your sight. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me new life 
and new purpose right now. Give me the power to live in obedience to you today and every day. And God, it's in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.